Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Christina Newland. On the show this week, David Chazelle showcases old Hollywood excess in Babylon. Life is short on More Than Ever. And on Film Club, it's a return to the silent era in It. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, Christina, very nice to have you back. Same crew as last time, which is, uh, you know, one of the A-list teams that we put together for this podcast. What have you been up to recently? Just, uh, you know, enjoying writing about and thinking about the incredible excess of Babylon as of late. Done quite a lot of pieces around it and around its historical accuracy or lack thereof. And I guess looking forward to a good old sparring session about it, because I know that David is probably not as big of a fan of it to say the least we'll come to that (laughs) (laughs) david i think the less controversial subject is all the beauty or the bloodshed subject of the latest issue that is seems to be getting a pretty rapturous reception from everyone well yeah i mean it seems to have gone down really well i mean hopefully when people start seeing the film and realizing how how amazing the film is that people will want to sort of pick up the magazine and delve a little bit deeper into it. And yeah, no, really proud of the issue. One of my favorite covers. And yeah, now just in that kind of weird spot that always seems to happen at the beginning of a new year where you're kind of at the tail end of award season and people are so kind of fixated on the awards horse race that they kind of forget about all the other movies that need to be like released and put out and readied for the for, for audiences so like we're in a bit of a kind of liminal space between the worlds of releases and non-releases trying to wait for something to, to, to put on our next cover yeah no it's crazy to think that we don't have like the year's worth of covers lined up already but that's how we roll <laughs> yeah it does seem that um all the beauty all the bloodshed is sort of not necessarily going to win every award under the sun even though it's got this great reception because it is Maybe a little bit too edgy. If you kind of look at the awards season contenders this year, there's not much grit in there. No. Within the kind of documentary strand, that that award tends to go to something that's sort of cuddly and lovely and is affirmative and, and makes people people feel happy. So, like, maybe this won't be the year. I mean, I think the hope would be that a film like this would maybe get nominated for Best Picture. I'm, I haven't really seen it talked about, but it's certainly, in my mind, much more deserving than some some of the films that have been kind of talked up into that race. So 
guess we'll we'll see. I mean, am I right in thinking that we'll have nominations by this time next week? That is correct. Yeah, just at the end of Sundance. But yeah, it does seem very strange to me that there is this idea of what is deserving to be an Oscar-worthy film when last year Best Picture was Coda. <laughs> like The idea that something like All the Beauty and All the Bloodshed maybe doesn't reach the cinematic potential of Coda, for God's sake. It feels like with that film, it has enough, you know, the traditional Oscars thing about having like a serious theme. I mean, it does have that. It's just a little bit more freeform in terms of the way that it kind of gets around its ideas. But when it's looking at things like the opioid crisis and and then, you know, and, and kind of mirroring the AIDS crisis in the 80s and stuff, it seems like it could be Oscar worthy in, in that very kind of broad, vulgar <laughs> way, for lack of a better way to put it. On, on a different note, there's this thing that's been going on online, which pro- people have probably noticed where like this, this movie called To Leslie, which is an Andrea Riseborough movie in which she plays an alcoholic, has been getting this kind of groundswell of, of applause from mainly Hollywood A-listers in what looks like this kind of insider guerrilla marketing campaign to get her a Best Actress nomination. And yesterday, or, or like two days ago, Ben Stiller tweeted about how much he loved After Sun. And I'm wondering if like After Sun could now be the coder of this year. I mean, the difference being that After Sun is actually good, but like, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it could be the sort of dark horse. But yeah, I wonder if there will be like, Ben will be rallying his Hollywood pals to fly the flag for After Sun because everyone seems to love it. It would be a consensus pick. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like now it's so much more about the stories and the speeches than the films themselves. Like people want Brendan Fraser to win because he, they want to see a tearful speech about a comeback or same with uh, Kihei Kwan in some ways. And I can't resent that. But God, what a lovely story it would be if little old After Sun pulled it off. Yeah, I mean, they're announcing BAFTAs today also. So I think it, it definitely in this country has a little movie that could energy for sure. Um, it's just a nice thing in the kind of role of critic when you get to champion these smaller films. And if they go on to, I think the momentum behind something like After Sun or The Beauty and the Bloodshed has been generated a lot from that. So we often get lambasted as being kind of people who don't like films and, you know, just want to bring James Cameron down. But there's a nice side to this gig too. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Babylon is a tale of outsized ambition and outrageous excess. It traces the rise and fall of multiple characters during an era of unbridled decadence and depravity in early Hollywood. So, Christina, this is an era that you know a lot about, that you've written a lot about. So, Davy and Chazelle's latest starts in about 1926, and then we go to kind of 1932 and a little bit further into the future as well. So, what is it that this film is really looking at? What was this era in Hollywood? Well, I mean, it kind of brings you in at a point where, you know, you're sort of plunged in on, in the deep end in, in many ways with this film. You start more or less at a movie studio mogul's party, which is sort of insane and there are orgies and, you know, an excess of drugs and all this sort of stuff. But you're also plunged into the movie making system at a time when, I mean, the word system is, is probably entirely the wrong word to use because it is sort of 
only just finding its feet in many ways. And in terms of artistry in 1926, 1927, 1928, which you, you see in this movie, you know, you start to get some real silent era masterpieces. It's a time of great innovation in the silent era. Uh, there's movies like uh, Murnau's Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which made the, I think, the top 20 of a sight and sound list or something like that. So there's this great innovation in artistry and this kind of Wild West spirit to 1920s Hollywood. And then you get the, the coming of sound, which sort of begins in 27. And then you get fully in 1929 with the jazz singer. And you see Babylon cover this period and the changes. It doesn't fully take that on as its main thesis, but it's it's a huge part of, you know, we're seeing the rise of some stars and the fall of others in that way. And it plays into some of the myths around that, like that silent era actors are extremely stagey and theatrical, or that some people, you know, there's that kind of like rumor about people having squeaky voices even, or not talking correctly and needing diction lessons. And some of that had some truth to it. But like, so we see Babylon play fast and loose with various myths and beliefs about that time, but it also gets a lot of things right. Yeah, you felt that it was quite an accurate depiction of this kind of era of excess and sort of, you know, depravity in Hollywood? I mean, accurate's not exactly what it's going for. I think it's very much kind of into the the mythological idea of the Kenneth Anger book, Hollywood Babylon, which has been pretty much roundly debunked, telling the stories of all these incredibly lurid things that movie stars were up to at that time, love affairs and murders and promiscuity and whatever, all that stuff. I mean, it may have had the seed of truth somewhere, depending on the story, but generally speaking, it's been shown to be untrue or exaggerated. And I think Babylon takes its spirit from that exaggeration. It's sort of like the spirit, not the letter of the time, which is to say that there were stars like Tallulah Bankhead, who, you know, kind of went on to the 1930s, started on the stage, was notoriously kind of hedonistic. And there were murders. William Desmond Taylor was a very famous film director of the 1920s who was shot dead in his mansion. And to this day, it, it remains kind of an unsolved case. There was the Fatty Arbuckle trial. It's a very, very famous comedian of the time who was accused of manslaughter. And it, it involved a, a young starlet who was in his room in a hotel at a, at a wild party. And, you know, she passed away and the circumstances were extremely mysterious. That's actually referenced a little bit at the beginning of Babylon at the wild party at the beginning. Actually, Fatty Arbuckle probably wasn't guilty, but that's getting into the weeds, I guess. Yeah, I suppose it was also just that time where that slightly more Puritan spirit in a lot of America started to creep in and being outraged by all these kind of Hollywood ingrates. But David, for you, this is, it kind of seemed at first like this might be a love letter to Hollywood, to the golden era. Like, it's not really that. Tonally, how would you describe it? Well, I think from my take, it seems to want to, the tone is like the most difficult thing to describe of this film because it hits very extreme poles of the tonal spectrum and in, in a way that I found not that satisfying. I think it sort of adopts this standpoint of delivering maybe, I, th I think it's been called like poison pen letter to Hollywood, you know, like a kind of something that is intended to be derisive and explosive and looking at Hollywood in this new way and bursting this, the myths that we may have developed of, you know, the romantic myths that we may have about this era. But I just personally found that like it was sort of bursting myths that don't necessarily exist. And for all the reasons that Christine has talked about, I mean, that there's always been this frisson and underbelly of scandal. And from my vantage, the majority of cinema that has dealt with 
classic era Hollywood, looking at the machinations and the dramas and the scandals and the occupation of working within the studio system, being an actor, being a director, being an artist, that that has never, Hollywood has never sort of self-mythologized about that being a good thing. I mean, it's, it has always been about tragedy and debauchery. And that is the story that has always been told. And I, and I kind of feel that like Babylon is trying to sell us something that we already know. I mean, the film kind of famously opens on the, the kind of, I guess the lead character, his, his name's Manny Torres, played by Diego Calva. And he's this kind of like naive Latino wannabe there's not really a sense of what he wants to be yet but he wants to kind of be in Hollywood he wants to be doing something in Hollywood in moving pictures and we kind of meet him at a kind of low ebb at the beginning of the film when he is sort of a party arranger and he is helping arrange this kind of debauched party in a mansion on the hill where there's a giant orgy and as as Christine has already said there's lots of cocaine and and you know lots of things happening behind closed doors that you you know uh, are meant to meant to be kept behind closed doors and he and the camera are shat on by the by an elephant that they're trying to push up a hill as a kind of big centerpiece for this party and there, there is an obvious symbolism to that that idea of like we're going to shit on the character and we're going to shit on you and we're going to be doing that for a long time and i feel that that's maybe i kind of lord damien chazelle's honesty but that's kind of what i feel that he he does to us for like three hours before this sort of very last minute u-turn you know the the film ends in this way that i i don't even feel like i can comment on because i feel like i'm not even sure what what i saw or what it's supposed to be saying but there is this quite kind of bizarre coda at the end of the film involving the manny's character as an older man and i think it's probably not worth us talking about in too much detail here because i think it's one of those things that people need to kind of experience and process for themselves but i think that was my general feeling on the tone is that like it's got this hysterical edgelord vibe to it that i just wasn't buying for a second that i just didn't feel the manic mayhem was showing us anything that you know we hadn't seen in countless other films before yeah i I think i kind of took it more favorably than you probably because i've been warned that this kind of final 10 minutes was so out of step with the rest of it but to me there's kind of parallels with whiplash where it's that you know something could be so brutal and so damaging and really not worth it but you kind of end on this feeling of but like but it's still so intoxicating and it brings you in you know that final scene of whiplash where you're like does Damien Chazelle hate jazz drumming or maybe he loves it one of the things with this Chrissy that I thought was interesting because I know that We've heard kind of tales of Hollywood before, as David said, but this character of Manny and this character of Sidney Palmer, those to me were different perspectives. Yeah, I do think the film is, to to David's point as well, there are flaws inherent in the film. It's a quite an unwieldy thing. And those last 10 minutes are absolutely batshit. But um, in terms of what you're saying, I think it does make an effort to show that Hollywood of the time was both a dreary and punishing place to be for people of color. And Manny being a Mexican-American immigrant who crossed the border when he was a kid, because they give you a little bit of that backstory in a conversation he has with Margot Robbie's character, Nelly, and the Sidney Palmer character, who I think may be based on somebody like Duke Ellington, because in the period between the late 
20, sort of like 1929 to like 1931, you had a period where a lot of black musicians were brought in, you know, because of talking pictures and because of the, the spate of musicals. But then by 1931, there's this weird thing happened, whereas this, like the system started to consolidate itself, a lot of people of color were kind of left in the cold. Of course, there were still people of color in movies, but like the roles that they were having or were allowed to have, it's like it was a phase, basically, in this, in this one point of early sound and then it sort of disappeared a little bit so what you see i think in the movie is that you know the the various struggles of that situation but you also see that and maybe this is me looking at it from somebody that's interested in this era but you had a, a large amount of female directors writers you had a sort of freedom for people of color for working class people because i think the industry hadn't yet become such a like strict top down hierarchical thing in the way that it later would and so this wild west spirit where it was like somebody would be walking down the street and then go like oh here you know hold this and that's how they'd end up with a 45 year career in in motion pictures like that spirit kind of the lack of regulation of course racism was still there sexism was still there but like there was a little bit more kind of freedom for people to almost slip through the cracks you see i found this the sydney palmer story to be really almost like a kind of afterthought like his his interactions with the brad pitt character with manny with margot robbie as nelly Leroy, who herself is is kind of loosely based on clara bow that those those intersections were so superficial and like his story which ends in this kind of moment of extreme public humiliation where it's so contrived and manipulative and the things that he was asked to do felt like this was again Chazelle making a kind of contemporary statement rather than actually trying to do something that felt authentic I think my issue with the film in general is that the the thing I learned the most about in this film I feel is Damien Chazelle not Hollywood. I feel like I'm learning about his opinions. I feel I'm learning about his instincts and impulses as a filmmaker, which I have to say, apart from like his first film, which I saw many, many years ago, which I really love. I haven't, I've disliked every single one of his films and pretty much all for the same reason is his insistence on leaning on pummeling maximalism as a way to dazzle I mean, it's this kind of cinematic sleight of hand where, and and I mean, this is subjective, personal thing of like when when you're being pummeled by editing and action and noise and sound and all this stuff that he just throws at the screen relentlessly, and particularly in in this film in, in its opening hour, you're like the nuance is just lost. And as you say about Whiplash, by the end, you don't know what he thinks. You, you, you know, even at the end of this film, I don't know what he thinks. I mean, he's it's this kind of like, I'm going to throw all this stuff at the screen and I'm going to kind of U-turn and throw this other completely conflicting opinion at the screen and you can sort of run with it as you please. It felt strange to me that on one hand, as you say, Christina, yes, I think there is a sort of inherent celebration of the kind of natural diversity of that early era Hollywood, even when there was clear underpinnings of exploitation, especially on a kind of class level. But I, I wish that he'd given more focus and the Sydney subplot had actually felt more like interlocked with the rest of the film, like actually reflected of the journey. And like, because Ma- Manny's character is involved in Sydney's kind of climactic humiliation in a way that just feels completely 
antithetical to Manny's character and to the situation itself. Like he's forced something to do something in public that I feel is just monstrous. And you feel like this is being done to kind of like ramp up the drama, ramp up the emotion and to hell with the authenticity. That for me is a kind of calculus of like so much of the film. Sorry, that's a bit of a tangent there, I, I realise. But one thing I will say about this film is that I do get like the the allure and the appeal of it and i do get that there is a there is a kind of duality to the readings of it and and i think that it really kind of deals with like real fundamental questions about why do we enjoy movies like what is it about movies that appeals to us and makes us want to go and see them and sort of live in that world for a bit and like i think that there are there are things in this film where where Jet Damien Chazelle is like he he is answering that question like he's he's he is trying to engineer like why would people want to be in this cinema and what what why how am I going to keep them there and how am I going to keep them interested I just think that the the way that he has answered that question is not very appealing to me but I can absolutely see why and how it is appealing to other people because I think the film as you say has been quite all over the map in terms of how people have reacted to it yeah I mean you said pummeling maximalism that i mean i'm just like yep sign me up like <laughs> it's just my cup of tea in that way i mean another filmmaker who who i really dislike who i think damien chazelle is is most akin with is baz lerman i mean baz lerman's got his own things going on and i think that he as a filmmaker is coming out of the lineage of like mgm musicals and i, I think that's maybe a little bit more forgivable for me. I don't think he takes himself as seriously as Damien Chazelle, but I think they both have that more is more is more is more MO. And and I, and I just, I'm very much a less is less is less is less. I think that's really interesting because I almost feel like I just know what I'm going to get from those sorts of filmmakers. And I've never, I've not been a big Baz Luhrmann fan, minus Romeo and Juliet until Elvis, which I really dig. But like, whilst I'm with you up to a point, I, I guess I'd feel like with those filmmakers, I, I'm like, okay, strap in. Like, this is this is what this is going to be. So I guess in some ways, my expectations are are different. And I almost would be disappointed if they weren't giving me that more is more is more. Having said that, Babylon is still a very surprising film to sit through for the first time because the tone is wild. I guess where I would diverge from from you on that is that do I do I totally think it works in like a cinematic perfection kind of way? Do I think that it's like made with these huge broad strokes where it's like, did we need this part of the subplot or the scene weird scene with Toby Maguire as some like kind of vulturous weird gangster? Like, no. We didn't. Is he we meant didn't. to be Charlie Chaplin, Christina? What, Tobey Maguire? Yeah. I, I hope not. I don't think so. I kind of thought Charlie Chaplin at that point, maybe. <laughs> Especially in Hollywood Babylon. Like, I mean, Charlie Chaplin does not come out of that book well. <laughs> no, no. But then who does? Especially not women. Like, no. women in general do not come out well from Hollywood Babylon. I think, I do think that it's not as, like, edgelordy, I guess, to borrow from your phrase, is what I, like, that wasn't my kind of take on it. Like, I feel like when you watch it, even when it's showing like these absurd and often kind of darkly comic sort of mini horror stories of like extras who've been like at one point quite early in the film, there's this, there's a battle sequence where they're like, oh, it's a bunch of Skid Row junkies who are like all the, the soldiers. So it's like this horribly, horribly exploitative thing. And then of course there was no health and safety at that time. And it is true that, you know, there was a, there's a joke in 
Blazing Saddles. It's like he's killed more people than Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil B. DeMille did have loads of people die on set. That is true. People drowned. People, you know, like it was really dangerous. And so you get that in this. And it's it's kind of one of my favorite parts because it's not something that people really acknowledge that often. And it's played for laughs. So yes, there's that nastiness to it. But overall, it kind of always ends on, but wasn't it exciting? And wasn't it beautiful? Like, I think its tone in general is romantic and quite sentimental. If you watch La La Land and the swooning romanticism of that, like, it's like a holdover of that. So it's like an underside to La La Land, like this dark, seedy underbelly with all the drugs and all the nastiness and the deaths. But like, actually, it ends on Jack Conrad, the Brad Pitt character, and his co-star having like a perfect scene together. And it being very romantic and they kiss and like a butterfly lands on him. And it's like, so it's kind of, I think it's, it's always got this quite sentimental feel to it about aren't the movies grandkids, which is, um, you know, sort of endearing, I think, even though it does tip into being quite sentimental, especially by the ending. We should get some scores on this before we move on. Christina, was this movie grand in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Yeah, I would go, I would go five anticipation straight across the board. Maybe in retrospect, I guess I'd go like down to a four. It's not perfect. It's a Marmite film, but I had a, I had a great, great, great time with it. David, how do you feel about Marmite? (laughs) Well, I dislike Marmite quite a bit, actually. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm probably going to go for a, a three. As I say, I dislike Damien Chazelle pretty much film for film and yeah i'd probably give it a three because obviously there's some intriguing elements here and and uh, you know i'm interested in what people have to say about classic era hollywood there's not many films that are kind of dealing with that but it's probably i probably say one for enjoyment because i just was w- watching this through gritted teeth there was just things i i disliked about it in, in it in every every minute every moment but i'd probably say a two in retrospect or maybe even a three in that as much as I've I intensely dislike the film, I've re, I've enjoyed the discourse around it, and I I have to admit I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I've had numerous quite lengthy conversations with people about it who have both disliked and liked it. So it's certainly been a worthy kind of talking point, and I, I think that a lot of critics and you know people who, who know about film who like it yourselves included are, you know people I respect gr- greatly and uh, you know I'm, le- I'm sort of learning stuff about it myself so it's you know not not to the point where I'm feeling like I, I've oh actually maybe I've misunderstood I mean I think it, it's that kind of old person my, my ways are calcified I cannot be changed <laughs> so so three three one three yeah, I, I ended up actually just feeling pretty mid about it. Towards the end, I just thought that perhaps if somebody had come into this with a really great edit and just taken all of Jack Conrad's plot out of it, because I found it so predictable and uninteresting compared to some of the other little subplots. But yeah, I haven't liked a film of his since Whiplash. But I, I did think there was a lot of this that was really fun. And there were elements of it that I did want to kind of pass over in my brain and was excited to speak to you both. So an incredibly dull 333 from me, I've got to say. But yeah, next up, we've got more than ever. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Helen and Mathieu have been happy together for many years. The bond between them is deep. Faced with an existential decision, Helen travels alone to Norway to seek peace and the blogger she found on the internet. I mean, I think it's not a spoiler to say, and it's not in that summary, but David, this is a film about Vicky Creep's character dealing with kind of a terminal diagnosis in the great tradition of films about people facing terminal diagnoses. Did it work for you? Yeah, it reminded me of a term that I I kind of got to know quite a bit when I was earning my spurs as a film critic. And I I don't think it's used as much anymore because I think it, it, it kind of related a bit more to TV was Disease of the Week movie, which was essentially a kind of a templated melodrama that involved a character suffering from a disease, which then allowed them to act in a, in a kind of big way. And I think that more than ever does owe a small debt to the Disease of the Week movie, although it is obviously a much more serious tenor and I think is is a lot more kind of philosophical about the situation and how the character deals with it. So yeah, you've got Vicky Krieps, who who I just, I, I really think is just now, you have a tourism where you think, oh, is it this director? I love this director. Where, whereas Vicky Krieps is one of those, like, I'm really keen to see what Vicky Krieps is doing. Her hit rate for me is like really high. Sometimes the films aren't great, but like she's this kind of compelling, worthwhile presence you know, and and quite a unique presence as well. I don't think even in a, in a film like Corsage, I think the the way that she embodies this character who has been embodied so many times before in a completely unique and different way that is very kind of personal just makes her someone interesting and someone worthwhile. And I think that she, you know, she delivers this film. It's, you know, it's a film of high seriousness. It's a film about mortality. Her character, Helene, has this, it's, it's a kind of lung disease where she's essentially, you know, finding it harder and harder to breathe as the walls of her lungs harden. And the only way to fix it is via a, a lung transplant, which is a very kind of dangerous operation and difficult to find a kind of medical match. So she's, she's in this kind of sort of limbo of sort of thinking about what's going to happen to me. You know, you have this awkward scene early on where she has a kind of party. She goes to a party with friends and, and her uh, diagnosis and the prognosis as well is kind of the elephant in the room and people don't really know how to deal with it. And she kind of confronts them about it. And she, she's obviously want, wanting to go back inside herself a bit. And I guess like the idea of like being with other people and sharing in their happiness and seeing them live carefree, disease-free lives is something that she finds 
hurtful and sort of exacerbates this sense of melancholy. And so she she's online and she's looking for she's looking for other sort of survivors that she can reach out to and, and, and connect with and hear their stories and hear their ways that they have been able to sort of survive in these drastic situations. And then she she does eventually connect with this guy online who has a weird sort of Tumblr-esque thing that where he sort of posts pictures and and writes slightly cryptic comments underneath and and she eventually manages to connect with him and and decides to go and visit him in this kind of it's a kind of rural idyll out by a lake it's kind of it's sort of snowy and hearty and hardy and woody and you know it's a kind of back to nature narrative where she feels that she wants to try and live with her thoughts for a bit and with this other guy who could maybe like understand her situation a bit more than her boyfriend played by the late Gaspar Ulliel, who died in a skiing accident. I think this was his penultimate film role, which is very kind of shocking and sad news in and of itself. That certainly makes the experience of watching this film dealing with death, gives it a kind of a strange added dimension, I think. But yeah, I think the film is kind of hushed and philosophical and and it sort of deals with difficult questions and you know i think the way that vicky kriep's character helen the choices that she makes are not always that easy to kind of understand from from a from a kind of audience perspective but you know i think it sort of sells us on the idea of like that there are no real tried and tested ways to deal with the situation and that you have to kind of in some respects freestyle it as best you can and do the things that make you feel comfortable and happy because, you know, above all else, it's it's a confusing situation. So for me, I I did like the film very much. I liked some of, some of what you say completely. Like Vicky Creeps, she's just phenomenal. And I think she doesn't have to do a lot as an actor for you to be kind of fascinated by her. She's got this kind of compelling mystery about her almost like there's something slightly enigmatic about her even when she's kind of heavily emoting but like there's this kind of veil behind her eyes where you you, you're immediately like i need to know more about what's going on in there i think she's a really intelligent performer and i couldn't agree more about corsage as well like i just think she's a really reliably great actor i think the thing that i found really interesting about this movie was like without it feeling too forced it's made by a female director, Emily Atef, who did a few episodes of Killing Eve. And she has made other features. I have to say, I, I have to plead my ignorance on that. I haven't, I don't think I've seen any of the, her other films. But it does feel like a gendered perspective on this sort of terrifying situation. And I think that's sort of unique. Uh, there, there are a lot of movies about people who are facing terminal illness but this one kind of feels like what happens to a relationship as well like what happens when there's like a very male urge to fix something and so like her boyfriend is really obsessed by like finding a way to get this lung transplants you know very kind of like focused on researching it whereas she's much more kind of diffident about it i think and i don't think she needs someone to like swoop in and fix anything and she just needs kind of the time to herself to process what's going on and the fact that she rather than clinging to him for security or safety she kind of goes her own way a bit and i think that's kind of a bold and interesting choice and yeah maybe not entirely understandable to to audience members as david was saying because i mean that probably goes against a lot of our instincts of what maybe we would do in that situation for example but i think it does 
then present a series of questions about, you know, you come into this life alone and you go out of it alone, right? So what, like, what does she owe him? What does he owe her? What, you know, what, where is the, like, what is the received wisdom in how you act in the situation, if there is any? And the fact that she's willing to go go against the grain in that way uh, and the frustration that ensues, I think, is, is, yeah, it's quite an interesting take on this scenario, which maybe we've seen versions of in the past. Well, yeah, it, it does have this very melancholy feel, particularly after Gaspard's passing. But yeah, I agree with you. I think as a kind of almost feminist interpretation of kind of women that have been conditioned perhaps their whole lives to live in service of others, it, like there's something very beautiful about defying that, I suppose. But yeah, we should get some scores on this before we get too sad. Uh, David, do you want to start in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? I would probably say that it's a four in anticipation because, as I said, I'm I'm really excited by whatever Vicky Creeps is doing. I'd probably say like a three in enjoyment because it's quite a slow and hushed film and it kind of, the tide ebbs and flows a bit and the drama stops and starts. And I, I feel that maybe as a, that sometimes it's kind of dealing in this anti-dramatic thing that makes it hard to quote unquote enjoy even while it's it's always i think interesting and then maybe a four in retrospect as i think yeah i think it's certainly a film that it, it's kind of provocations about this situation certainly kind of live on in the mind and christina what about you i would say probably a two because i knew the circumstances around the film and i was really really saddened of course by Gaspar Lier's death. And I just, knowing that the topic was also about mortality, I was just like, oh Lord, oh God, <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. You know, like I, I had that, which is, I guess, understandable. Um, but actually, like, I think overall it was a three for, for like enjoyment. It was pretty tough, but it was, I think, a rewarding viewing experience and a thought provoking one. And yeah, as David says, quite slow. That's maybe a little bit of an issue for me. It's not a film that I would run back to rewatch. So then in retrospect, I would probably also say a three. Yeah, I did find myself thinking a little bit of Babylon during this because there's a moment where I think it's Gene Smart's character says to Brad Pitt's character about something that you'll live on forever in film. And that made me desperately sad when I was watching more than ever because it, you know, it's such a tragic loss. So yeah, maybe two, because normally when an actor I really like passes away I stop watching anything that comes out afterwards so I can feel that I have something left that I can still always go to yeah maybe a four I thought the performances were stunning and three in retrospect as a as a posthumous film it, it's I think that's where most of its power lies but it's certainly in many other regards very very well done next up for film club it At Waltham's department store, lowly sale girl Betty Luce wounds over Cyrus Waltham Jr., the handsome playboy son of the owner. Betty has it, aka sex appeal, in abundance, but it's an uphill battle getting Cyrus to notice. Finally, her smouldering glances begin to take effect, but of course, misunderstandings intervene. Can a woman who loves Coney Island hot dogs and a man who dines at the Ritz ever meet halfway? Well, Christina, that is, I mean... Clearly, they are going to meet halfway. This is not some kind of nihilistic tale of like class warfare. <laughs> like, what is it for you that's so special about it? It sort of defines. It sort of defines that moment, I think. And like looking back to Babylon, you know, the Margot Robbie character being based on Clara Bow, it's really interesting to watch this and look at the kind of mannerisms 
that Clara Bow has. And she's such a little firecracker. And I think like there's something so kind of almost cartoonishly like adorable about about her that's well she does have it and like of course the phrase came from Eleanor Glynn who was a wonderful writer of novels and screenplays and was you know a lot of the stuff that she wrote was sort of too racy to make it to the screen who to define this phrase you know and of course it's where we get the phrase it girl from but it's also quite interesting to look back at it in in a way like I've referred to her as adorable Betty Boop was in part based, modeled on Clara Bow. But like, I don't know that I look at it and think, wow, she's so sexy. Like, I don't know, I don't know how much I get that from it these days. So maybe that's a, um, a modern viewer looking back. But she sure is cute. But David, this was your choice for Film Club. Obviously, we've got this tie to Babylon, but why did you want us to revisit it? Well, I saw it I saw it a long time ago, like really long time ago, and my memory of it had, had lapsed a bit and I definitely wanted to sort of uh, you know, having seen those comparisons between the Margot Robbie character of Nelly Leroy and Clara Bow, definitely wanted to sort of re explore the film and I'm shocked that I didn't remember how delightful it is, to be honest, and that and Clara Bow's presence in the film. You know, like the many men in the film, you just cannot take your eyes off her because she has these kind of little kind of like perfect for silent era mannerisms where you see her kind of mouthing the dialogue and talking to people but you can you you don't even need to know what she's saying you don't even need to read the intertitles because she is so naturally expressive in the way that she is delivering her emotions and her and her feelings and she completely sells this kind of madcap tale that is sort of about her wanting to sort of essentially kind of connect with the owner of the, of the department store of which she is a kind of the lowly shop girl and trying to kind of connive her way up up the ladder but then i think i feel like maybe christina you could sort of comment on this but like the ending of the film feels like slightly uncharacteristic in in a way in the way that essentially she kind of ends up at the same point in which she started but that that is the the happy ending in a way that she's realized that all the men that she was involved with were revolting and uh, <laughs> but yeah that it it has this kind of strange uncharacteristic ending which is which i found very appealing but yeah it's on it's on youtube as well so very easy to to, to, to visit. Yeah, I do think, I mean, there is a tendency for us to expect that films of this vintage kind of tend to end in a very like gendered, happy ending kind of way. And it's sort of interesting because a film from the night, maybe like a few years later and like sort of the pre-code era in the early 1930s, you have a lot of gold diggers and a lot of like girls that are on the make and trying to get like a well-off guy or whatever. And yet... I guess like with this, yeah, it has like a really kind of more heartwarming moral of the story (laughs) tale to it rather than what you'd have in the 30s where you'd have like a Barbara Stanwyck like, you know, or somebody like wink to camera and be like, got my man. Like there's like, so I think there's like an interesting um, change in values as such. But yeah, this is like much more sweet and I think nice to watch, especially considering Clara Bow had, I mean, ended up with quite a reputation, many will say unfairly uh, in Hollywood as being you know, a bit like Nelly Leroy, completely wild. So it's sort of interesting to see like how, how sweetly she plays in some respects. Flirtatious, yes, but kind of sweet. So finally, we are going to wrap up with our non-film recommendations from our wonderful guest, David, your first one ever. I mean, third one ever done, so, but your first. Uh, so what are you going to recommend to listeners? Oh man, this is really boring. And this is just something that is kind of, I've personally been involved in for quite a long time and it's now over. So I feel like I should mention it, but 
but just before Christmas, I embarked on a video game called Elden Ring, which is a kind of epic fantasy RPG game, which I definitely did not become obsessed with and did de- definitely did not want to kill every single boss and make my guy the greatest and strongest character ever. Hopefully listeners will, will, will be aware of this, but for those who's not, it's a, it was the biggest, best video game of, of 2022 uh, that, that was kind of co-written by George R.R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones fame. And it's I love the games made by this company and this is their kind of pièce de résistance and it was suitably epic and I feel sad to not be living in that in that world anymore from the hours of 10 and, and 1 a.m. every every weeknight. But I'm also glad that I can carry on with other things. I've read like, I'm reading like novels now. I'm back to the, back to serious, serious business. I love that George R. R. Martin is simply never going to finish those books. He's now just moved into a completely different genre. But, you know, one that's, you know, giving you some richer rewards. So that's pretty good. I mean, how does one write a video game? Or is that just too big to get into? What, sorry? How, what, like, is there a lot of George R. R. Martin in this? I mean, does no, it feel it's, like it's, that it's sort a bit of... superficial? It's just he, he's, he's helped to sort of create the lore and the characters and the game's kind of built on top of it. So what his involvement is quite small, you, mainly a marketing selling point. And Christina, what about you? What is your non-film recommendation for the week? Uh, so I'm a little bit late to the punch on this because it did come out a little while ago, but um, earlier last year. But I have been catching up with the new Sharon Horgan show, who I love, who wrote and starred in Catastrophe, among other things. Uh, it's called Bad Sisters. And it's about it's on Apple TV. And it is about five Irish sisters who are very close. And one of them is married to the worst man on earth, played by, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Clay Spang, I want to say. Is that how you say it? I think it's Clay Spang, yeah. Yeah, so played by him. And he's just off, just the worst man on earth, like in every possible way. He's belittling to women. He's got a cruel, like a sadistic streak a mile wide. And slowly over the course of 10 episodes, we see more and more about his, his character and the effects that he's had on this family. But basically, these sisters decide to gang up and murder him on behalf of their bullied sister played by uh Anne-Marie Duff who's fantastic and my god it's fun and it's witty and it's really darkly comic and it's also really smart about the ways that abuse can be really insidious and weirdly heartwarming incredibly incredibly good value and 10 episodes it's you know it's not too many I will get into that not least because it contains from what I understand world's most handsome man Daryl McCormack Ah, yes, is the love interest of a youngest sister. Uh, he plays an insurance, not salesman, but he his he works for his brother's insurance company. And it's about, you know, he starts looking into, you know, the payout for what appears to be an accidental death. And yeah, so that, and then things get complicated as they are want to do. <laughs> so, yeah. With Sharon Hogan, a bit like Vicky Kreps, rarely misses. But yeah, um, very true. thank you both. Very true. Those both sound absolutely brilliant. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Spielberg tells his origin story in The Fablemans. The subject of the latest issue sees the future and all the beauty and the bloodshed. And in Film Club, we remain in downtown New York for 1983's Variety. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth in the Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Christina Newland and David Jenkins. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.